0: This is Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. I explore the questions people think but don't ask out loud, either because they're taboo or thanks to cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity by exploring the nuance and paradox of our world. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Hey, Curiositors, it's me, Meredith. In a recent listener survey, you told me that you'd like to hear more health and wellness episodes. So I made you a mixtape. These are three episode clips that touch different areas of wellness, heart disease, EMFs, and breathwork. You'll hear a swoosh sound in between the clips so you know that the next segment of audio is from a different point within that conversation. If you end up liking the mixtape style, you might also like episode 92, which is a mental health mixtape. And hey, I want to thank you for pressing play today. Making a show with new topics every week is about as anti-algorithm as you can get. And it does make it hard to grow the show, but it's curiositors like you who make it possible. You're here, ready to explore nuance outside the algorithm and grow as a person. Remember, if you think of someone while you're listening, share this episode with that person. This helps me grow the show and spread the message of curiosity. If you're on Overcast, your share button is the box at the top right corner with the arrow sticking upward. And if you're new here, welcome. Around here, we press play to get curious, disrupt the algorithm, and grow into better humans. We talk about everything from nutrition to near-death experiences. So bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. There's no specific order to listen to episodes. These episode clips are insights into the known and unknown health impacts of EMFs. Think cell phones, Wi-Fi, etc. And how we can live in a modern world minus the tinfoil hats. It's episode 109 with policy analyst, clinical psychotherapist, and executive director of the Environmental Health Trust, Theodora Scarato.
1: What I am talking about are EMFs or electromagnetic fields that are non-ionizing, thought to be harmless. For many, many years considered to be only harmful if they heat things up. In fact, uh, your microwave oven uses an electromagnetic field to heat your food. And cell phones are two-way microwave radios, actually. They use microwave radiation, but at very, very low levels, much lower than would heat your food. Obviously, you don't want to heat your brain, right? So the way that the government set our limits in 1996, which is 26 years ago, was by setting limits that don't heat tissue, don't cook tissue. So what we're involved in at Environmental Health Trust, in addition to a lot of uh, envi- other environmental exposures, is Electromagnetic fields, which are non-ionizing, like your cell phone, your um, Wi-Fi, your Bluetooth. Uh, Let's give you some more examples. Um, Your smart speaker, your smart watch, everything smart. Cell towers, small cells, 5G, all of those use invisible electromagnetic fields to communicate. And the limits that we have were based in 1996- they have not changed since. So if you think about it, you're, you're in your car. Would you drive in a car with uh, safety standards that had not been reviewed by experts for 25 years? Probably Would you ride not. in an airplane no. that hadn't been even looked at, where they hadn't even looked at the safety measures in place for 25 years? And that's where we are with this issue. I have a question about that
0: rat study. I went to the FDA website and I went to the the WHO website. And the first time I went to the WHO website, it said that EMFs were a potential carcinogen. And this was several months ago um, when I was initially researching this subject to introduce it on the show. I since went back and I can't find that information. And then, so that was confusing. And then I went to the FDA website. And uh, it, I, I believe it was the FDA website where it said scientific evidence of cell phone safety. But then when I read the article, it didn't actually demonstrate cell phone safety. It simply said, we don't really know, um, which I found additionally confusing. And then they cited the rat study, which I assume is the same one. It may be, it's different, but then it said, oh, the rats that were exposed to EMFs, they actually lived longer. So. I can see why this is such a confusing subject for so many of us because we are, A, beholden to our devices, right? You just mentioned at the beginning it's not just about cell phones. We have all these smart devices. Um, and, B, information is uh, it's dizzying. It's hard to figure out, okay, up from down. So can you help shed some light on some of these studies and, and why in the U.S. at least we have this fractured um, – information is so fractured among different websites?
1: Well, these are very good questions. So uh, if I were coming into this issue, I would be extremely confused for everything that you're raising. The FDA, something that any of your listeners can do is go to that FDA site and see that they never actually say that the rat study found clear evidence of cancer in the male rats or that it found DNA damage. And in fact, it found a heart damage in the male and female rats, but instead it says that, doesn't say that. There's actually un, un, inaccurate facts on the FDA website. Now, if you want to really dive in and just think about it for a second, go to the National Toxicology Program webpage on cell phones. So you type in National Toxicology Program cell phones and go to the NTP National Toxicology Page, and you will see what they say. Clear evidence of cancer. We found DNA damage. They have a whole Q and A. It's much more nuanced, uh, and it's but they don't dismiss the findings. So we're in this strange situation where the FDA is saying they don't agree with the NTP. Now the FDA has. Let me say this. No. Federal Health and Science Agency, as far as we know, has looked at all of the science. Even though it seems that way, when you go to the end to the FDA, they have a literature review, but they didn't actually do a proper risk assessment. That's why we filed against the FCC and uh, against the U.S. government. I mean, we had to file against our own government to call this out because the FCC said that there's no reason to change their limits. Yet the science that they have really in in our estimation shows that it does. And we won that case.
0: What other kind of health impacts do do EMFs cause? All the studies that I read were about... cancer, because it was like holding your phone to your head. But I thought, I don't know anybody that talks on their cell phone. (laughs) We all have it on our back pocket, or we're texting, you know, some people pull put it in their shirt, um, their front pocket. So have there been any studies on the uh, on other impacts? And what are those?
1: So a phone is not tested before it comes on the market to be touching your body, like you described. It shouldn't be in your bra, it shouldn't be in your spandex pants, it shouldn't be in your pocket, because when it is, it actually exceeds the government limits for what's allowed from the radiation. So when you put a device, a cell phone near your body, one thing that I learned that I was like, whoa, I had no idea, was that phones are emitting radiation even when you're not using them. So you put it in your pocket, it's still uh, updating the apps. It might be accepting text that you're not looking at at that time. And every time it does that, that is being, the phone is catching the signal and some of that signals going into your body when it sends back out and so forth. So there has been research showing damage to testes development, sperm damage, uh, case control studies on young women who put the phone in their bra And developed breast cancers, unusual breast cancers, not the kind you normally see, literally in the shape of a phone, directly underneath where the phone was carried. A lot of people will rest the phone on their abdomen. I had my my uh, step-nephew come over, and he took the phone. We were sitting outside, outside party. He took the phone and sat on it. And I was just you know, in shock. But then I thought, well, he's like a normal teenager. Like this is apparently what they do. Where are you going to put the phone? He doesn't have a pocket. He sat on the phone. It was right under his special parts. Now, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and pregnant women are putting the phone on their abdomen as a shelf. There's research that has shown in, in mice, for example, damaged memory, hyperactivity. There's research that has shown prenatal exposure to human children you know, when mom is pregnant, linked to behavior problems, impacts to, um, to behavior and cognition, impacts to memory. So you want to keep that phone away from your brain and also your reproductive organs. There is skyrocketing colon cancer right now in young adults. And Dr. Deborah Davis, our president, just published a paper, well, not just, but um, published a paper last year uh, talking about, you know, could that be from these, the cell phone that's in our po- our back pockets, our front pockets, you know, and, or in combination with all the other toxins that we're exposed to? There have been research showing synergies, meaning, you know, how your doctor says you can't take this medicine with that medicine? It's like that with EMS because it can increase the effect of a known toxin. So that's a lot. It's a lot.
0: Yes. You know, and in preparing for this episode, I looked up my own cell phone because I had heard that each cell phone actually comes with a warning label. And I thought, Mm. I wonder if this is true. I definitely don't have the box or, you know, they don't actually give you the manual anymore. It's all online. And so I Googled EMF warning, Google pixel, 5, a, a, well, 5G, whatever my phone is. And sure enough, it said that not to hold it closer to your body than five eighths of an inch, which is about the size of my um, fingernail here, to your body and to use hands-free devices whenever possible. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, this is <laughs> this is real. Um, so mm-hmm. for those of us that live in a modern world, we love our our devices. How can we be safer um, about this while we're waiting for federal regulations to catch up and regulate the industry a little bit more? What are some practical things we can do to um, protect our bodies?
1: Oh, so much. So much low-hanging fruit. So simple. Keep the phone away from your head. Don't carry it in your bra, in your pants pocket. If you do need to carry it, power it off I'm not talking about turning the screen off. I'm actually talking about powering it off. I know that's hard. Some people that might be, I've gone too far. So I'm gonna step back for a second. Okay, Maybe. and I have a question about that. What if we <laughs>
0: put it on airplane mode?
1: Okay, so airplane mode is really important to learn about. Airplane mode means you've turned off the antennas, but unfortunately with the new, it used to be turn on airplane mode, the whole, everything's off. Now with some phones, And honestly, it depends on the phone. You might have your Bluetooth on or your Wi-Fi on or something else on. So you really have to go into settings and turn everything off. Then you've got your antennas off. Don't sleep with your phone. This is like super easy. Don't have your phone radiating on. Get a battery-powered alarm clock or turn it on airplane mode and have the phone that way. Oh, that's a good idea
0: because the alarm will still work with airplane mode, right? Right. Like, I don't even know. That's how bad this is, is I'm just so used to having it on all the time right. that when I began researching this, I was like, okay, I'm, it's on airplane mode and it's in my pocket. And then I went for a walk and I put it in my leggings as one does. And then right. I realized, well, crap, I didn't download the podcast episode I wanted to listen to. So right. now I, you know, there, it was just a totally different way of thinking. These episode clips give you fat definitions for dummies, so if the difference between poly and monosaturated fats has ever confused you, this will clear it up. These are from episodes 110 and 111 with nutrition journalist and New York Times bestseller Nina Teicholz on her findings after 10 years of research about the real cause of heart disease and why our nutritional policies have not changed despite half a million Americans dying from it each year.
2: I think it's important for people to know, especially as we go on in our conversation, is that I really had no preconceptions about diet at all. I was your average kind of not educated eater, except for what I knew were two things. Don't eat red meat and don't eat butter and and minimize the cheese and eat low fat whenever possible. So that's what I knew going into the beginning of this journey, which dramatically changed during the course of my my investigations. But it really changed because I, I, I read the science and, and came to understand that Some of the things that I thought were true really were not supported by the evidence.
0: Let's start with some definitions. So, first, what is heart disease exactly?
2: Well, heart disease is sort of, is an umbrella term that is used, and I think its most common understanding is atherosclerosis, (laughs) which is not an easy word to say, but that is what, what is a buildup of plaque in your arteries? That's what most people think of when they think of heart disease, but there are actually various other kinds of heart disease that include, um, ischemic heart disease, which is when there's reduced, um, Blood flow to the ox, to all your organs. There's cardiomyopathy, which is a deteriorate, deterioration of the heart muscle. Um, there's inflammatory heart disease, which is an inflammation of the heart muscle. And there's also kind of an um, all body um, reduction in your ability to, your circulatory ability. And that is due to high blood pressure and it's called hypertensive heart disease. So all these things are under this umbrella term of, of heart disease. And also I would say stroke is probably, you know, closely enough related to heart disease that it's often included in analyses of heart disease.
0: And what about polysaturated, polyunsaturated, monosaturated? Like, talk to me (laughs) with definitions. Pretend for a moment that it is a bar and like it's last call and I'm still sitting there and someone needs to drive me home. Like, give me that version of the definition. Like, I'm really drunk and a little dumb. (laughs)
2: Okay. All right. You um, dumb drunken people out there. Um, So what polyunsaturated, so fats, all fats come in different forms. All right. And it has to do with the structure of the chemical molecules, like, um, and almost all foods contain all kinds of, of fatty acids. If vegetable oils are largely, so I'm talking about soybean, sunflower, canola oil, um, all those oils that you use, nearly all of them, are what's called polyunsaturated fats. And the poly just means that it has multiple double bonds. And the only thing you have to know about that is that all those double bonds, they can break open, especially when they're heated, and bond with oxygen. And so oxygen is what creates oxidation and leads to inflammation, and that's bad. You do not want that happening in your body. That's why you eat antioxidant foods. Um, So then there's something called monounsaturated fats, which is mono means just one double bond, so only one opportunity to open up and bond with oxygen. That's mainly olive oil. So that's why olive oil is, from a perspective of oxidation, a little healthier than the poly, mini double bond vegetable oils. And then finally, there's what we think is the worst fat, which is saturated fat. The saturated just refers to the fact that it has no double bonds. So no opportunity to bond with oxygen. So ironically, it it is actually the most stable fat Um, and it won't oxidize and it's safer to cook with. Which is, I know it went now upside down. Now you're like, I need to go home because uh, my, my brain can't handle this upside down world, you're telling me. But um, it turns out that saturated fats are the most stable and therefore the best for cooking.
0: Okay, so I'm going to, I like, um, uh, what is it called? Alliteration. So saturated, safe, it's a generalization, but it works for me and I can remember it. Saturated, safe, poly equals ox oxidized. And I don't have a word, a P word to go with that, but I'll work on it. I'll work on it. <laughs> How about plenty of oxidation? Oh, po- bam. There we go. Okay. Poly, plenty <laughs> of oxidation, saturated, safe. Okay. So heart disease, there weren't a lot of cases noted before the 1900s. How do we know that those cases of heart disease were just simply undocumented and that they existed?
2: Yeah, this is a good question because uh, what you go back when you go back and, and look at the medical literature in the early 1900s, and even in the middle of the 18 you know the 19th century. So in the 1800s, there were scientists studying heart disease. There were there were textbooks on heart disease. They had seen it. They knew what it looked like. They knew its manifestations, but they weren't seeing it show up in hospitals. So even in Mass General, a big hospital in a big city, they were not seeing cases of heart disease or very few cases, just like a handful during the course of a year. Um, And these were, you know, by the doctors who were leaders in the field that just did not see these cases. So by the 1920s, however, the late 1920s, heart disease had risen to become the number one killer in the nation, especially of men. It was men who got heart disease originally, which is kind of an interesting, little-known fact, because it wasn't until uh, maybe the '90s that that it that it really evened out in terms of killing both men and women almost equally. So there really was not heart disease. Um, in fact, there were no cardiologists; there were no doctors who specialized in heart disease until the late 1920s. So, um, so. What brought all of this into like, the consciousness of the nation was that President Eisenhower himself had a heart attack in 1955, um, and we can go into that if you want, but that really focused the attention of the whole nation on the fact that a young, youngish, middle-aged man could get heart disease, and often they died.
0: So before 1920, heart disease was still detectable, is what you're saying.
2: Recognized, identified, detectable, but rare.
0: You mentioned in another interview that the heart health hypothesis is the most studied hypothesis in nutritional history, and yet there are stacks and stacks and stacks of studies showing that it is not uh, not, not, true. Um, how did a, a hypothesis that has been proven not true become institutionalized?
2: Okay, this is a little bit of a long answer. (laughs) So you're talking about the diet heart hypothesis. It was proposed by a professor named Ansel Keys uh, in the late 1950s. And it the hypothesis was that saturated fats and dietary cholesterol, so eating eggs, red meat, cheese, would cause your your cholesterol in your body to rise. In those days, it was only total cholesterol that they measured, and that would sort of clog your arteries like you know, hot oil going down a cold stove pipe and give you a heart attack and you would die. And that was this idea that became enshrined as official policy by the American Heart Association in 1961. So that's the first time anywhere in the world that an organization is telling the public do not or cut back dramatically on saturated fat and cholesterol in order to prevent heart disease. That was the first time that people started saying cut back on red meat, cut back on full fat dairy, uh, cut back on eggs, shellfish, anything with cholesterol and saturated fats. So now it's policy. Well, it's very powerful when something becomes policy, there's a tremendous um, disinclination to back off a policy, right? You don't want to be seen as wrong. You don't want to be seen as potentially having harmed people by, by giving them this advice. And At that time in 1961, there was only a shred of evidence that this was actually true. I mean, when I say a shred, there was a large study, but it was a very very low quality evidence. It's called the Seven Country Study, and you can look it up and read a lot about, about that study, and it's also in my book. But then governments around the world tested this hypothesis in more rigorous kind of studies called controlled clinical trials. This is what we did, you know, to um, for every drug, any drug that you can get out of the pharmacy, it has to go through a clinical trial. And so this is the rigorous kind of evidence that policy needs. So there were all these experiments on some 75,000 people all over the world in Finland, Australia, the UK, the US, mostly in the US, testing to see if people who there would be two groups. One group would eat saturated fat, regular milk, regular cheese, regular meat. And the other group would have soy-filled cheese, soy-filled milk, whatever the Impossible Burger version of then was, they would eat that. And at the end of all those experiments, they could not, they universally could not find that saturated fats, eating more of them, had any impact on your likelihood of dying from cardiovascular disease. From a heart attack, from from any kind of heart disease. And most of the studies showed it didn't affect events, it didn't affect heart attacks, it didn't affect myocardial infarction or anything like that. And in in many of these studies, about a dozen of them, it showed that people who were on the vegetable oil diet died at higher rates from cancer, which was extremely upsetting and disturbing and was taken very seriously um, when these results came out. But ultimately... All of these results were but um, they became what's sort of known as like silent science. They were forgotten, they were ignored the papers weren 't published papers lay in the basements of buildings data tapes went unanalyzed i mean there's really a very rich history of how all this data was somehow just ignored. So what happened was, is that there was kind of a renaissance of interest, partly due to my book, and also there's been um, books by others, but about 10 years ago, scientists all over the world started to look back at this forgotten data, these forgotten studies. Um, Again, 76,000 people tested, that is the most tested hypothesis in nutrition in the history of nutrition. And these papers, which have looked again at this whole body of knowledge, have come up with this universally, again, the same answer, that eating more, that reducing your saturated fat, cutting back on red meat and dairy and all of that has no benefit for cardiovascular mortality. And I also have to say, or total mortality, which means death from any cause. So, you know, we're in a situation now where there are now some 20 of these review papers that have been published in the last decade. I just participated in the publication. I was an author on one of the most recent papers on this. And but it's it's like knock 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 at the door of the policymakers who just can't hear it, can't see it. Um we actually there were actually like high-level experts in nutrition, some of the leading nutrition experts in the field went to talk to people who run the government policy on nutrition and said, "Look, you have to consider the latest data on this subject." And it's just like um just kind of a blockout on this on this most recent science. It's it's a it's a very strange chapter in the history of of nutrition science, or I think really any kind of science. For heart disease, of the regularly commonly measured indicators, your HDL to your triglyceride ratio is the best and most reliable predictor of your risk. Um, and And that means your HDL needs to be pretty high and your triglycerides are low. HDL is reflective of your um, saturated fat intake. Actually saturated fat is the best way to raise your HDL. Your triglycerides are driven by your carbohydrate content. So your sugar and things that turn into sugar once you digest them like bread, rice, pasta, and sugary fruits. So, In terms of other aspects of metabolic health, there is um, something called a CRAFT test that is uh, the best kind of test that you can get to see if you are en route to becoming diabetic. Because most people develop this condition called hyperinsulinemia, which is something that doesn't show up um, in the regular tests that you're given to see if you're, you have diabetes, they measure something called your hba one c That once you have elevated hba one c you have been pre-diabetic probably for at least five years and you wow. could have done something about it. So you really do want to catch that early. Um, and then there's, you know, just the look test, which is if you're gaining weight and you're, um, you know, it's often that the, the origin of all these diseases causes, which is metabolic um, excessive insulin and, and heightened blood sugars, elevated blood sugars, those are the conditions that's from, from which spring all these diseases. So from that comes obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, some people think cancer as well, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And you know how you get those conditions, it really varies by person. There are thin diabetics. There are um, there are people who are very overweight, who have normal blood sugars. So it really,
0: there's a lot of variation. Let's pause for a quick minute to show appreciation to our sponsors. If you ever wonder where I find guests for the show, the answer is it varies a lot. And since it's something that gets asked a lot, I started including the backstory of each episode in my Monday emails. And then on Saturday, I share cliff notes and clickable links in case what you heard was so good, you wish you could have taken notes. If you want to be included, text REAL to 66866 if you're in the US or go to meredithforreal.com if you're elsewhere. If you're listening north of the state of Georgia, mosquitoes are not top of mind right now. But if you're in the Florida panhandle or Gulf Coast of Alabama, you're already dusting off your grill and citronella candles. Make life easy for future you and get your property scheduled for a mosquito treatment with insect. I've been using them since 2019 and they continue to impress me. They guarantee their work and pollinators are always top of mind. Check them out at ENSEC.net. If you watch the show on YouTube, then you see the beautiful backdrop of Trader John's, the exhibit where I record the show inside the Pensacola Museum of History. This is just one museum under the umbrella of the UWF Historic Trust. If you're planning a trip to Pensacola and need an indoor activity option, pick up a ticket. It's good for a whole week. Get your tickets in person so you can show the agent one of my emails and get $2 off an adult ticket. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. These episodes offer hope for the modern human condition of caffeine, work, and repeat with what Jesse Coomer calls the ultimate performance enhancing drug, your breath. He's the author of the book, A Practical Guide to Breathwork, and has a personal transformation story of using breathwork to rid himself of chronic anxiety, depression, and addiction.
3: The way that the autonomic nervous system works for all creatures. On the planet, except for us, but it mostly does this for us too. I'll get into that in a minute. But the way that it works is that we receive bottom-up signals, and what that means is we get environmental signals. So, you know, I guess an extreme example would be uh, if you saw a, a you know a lion chasing after you, and this was you know maybe a typical day for for Neolithic man, a lion might be chasing after you, and suddenly your your autonomic nervous system says, okay, we don't need so much to worry about digesting lunch because we might be lunch <laughs> for this animal. <laughs> yeah. so we need to run. So, So all of the blood would go to your skeletal muscles. You would have adrenaline, stress hormones, all these things that put you in a state of what we traditionally call the state of fight or flight. So, okay, so great. We get out of that state and hopefully we're not in that state for very long. We can't live in that state all the time. But eventually you get out of that state and whenever your autonomic nervous system detects safety, okay, great. Let's switch back over so we can go back to digesting lunch. And we call that the rest and digest state. So, you know, we can, it's also known as the parasympathetic state that rest and digest and the sympathetic state is the fight or flight. So those are the two states that we pretty much find ourselves in. You're always, one is generally going to be dominant over the other. Well there's this interesting miracle that happened um, when it comes to humans and I don't know if you noticed but we're the only ones that seem to be able to talk right and so <laughs> and this is what? this is something <laughs> so far so far you know unless you know um, you know you're doing hallucinogens or, or something other than that but but you know well, that's that's a different episode right. but uh, but anyways <laughs> so so we're the only ones that are that seem to be able to talk and what happened was, Whenever we develop, and this is this is the theory, right? When we develop the ability to speak, we also develop the ability to modulate our breathing. And if you think about what I'm doing right now, there's an enormous amount of modulation. I mean, it would be so weird if I couldn't control the the breath and in, in, in and out. It would, you know, I, I wouldn't even want to try it. It would sound so weird. So it's interesting. So this was normally something, and for all the rest of uh, of the creatures on the planet, this is an automatic thing only. So they can't. So whenever you're walking your dog or, you're, or hanging out with a cat or whatever, are you a cat person or a dog person? Dogs. Dogs. All okay, cool. Way. Me too. Me way. too. My dog, my dog <laughs> my dog and I, if whenever we're taking a walk, I'm the only one that can hold my breath. The dog can't do it. And whenever the dog switches over to panting through the mouth versus through the nose. He didn't even think about it. That was not something that was a conscious thing. We can do this. And, and it's all because we have this strange, this, this one you know miracle of evolution call it whatever you want to call it. But we have this ability. And it's interesting that this is connected to the part of our brain that is very close to our emotion centers. And so what science has shown us, and, and this is something that I was very fortunate as I was writing this book, I made friends with a neurophysicist neuroscientists, neuro everything. I mean, just if there's something about the brain, Dr. Otto Muzik is is the guy to talk to. And um, we went over a lot of the science, and I did an enormous amount of research as I as I went through this book. Over the uh, the past, you know, five years as I've researched breath work, as I've taught it, as I've coached people. And what over decades of research we've found is that. Because we have this ability, we can send what we call a top down signal through our autonomic nervous system to influence that state. So this is something that is really helpful to us because we live in a world that pretty much, like you said, you know, caffeinate and all this stuff. We live in a very sympathetic dominant world where it's very common for a person to not even realize. And this is the, how it was for me. I didn't realize that I was in a state of fight or flight pretty much nonstop, mm. um, because w- w- if that's all you know, if that's right. your everyday existence, yeah, right.
0: And everyone else is doing it.
3: Everyone else is doing it, right? And and the thing is, not not only not only is it uh, normalized, it's it's kind of praised, yeah. right? Yeah. How you doing? Hard. I'm busy. Oh, hard.
0: good. Things must be good if you're busy.
3: Yeah, stay busy, stay caffeinated, and then whenever you can't get—I know—so when you can't get to sleep, what do you do? Well, you take all these prescriptions, and and then you know you you get knocked unconscious, or maybe you go drinking that night and have a great American time, right? And then and then the next morning, you know, just do it again and rock and rock and we go hard. And so this takes a terrible toll on our body because what happens is those stress um, hormones—they stay. They stay active and that suppresses all the other things that we need to recover, to heal and, um, and to, to live a healthy life. When you are in a state of fight or flight in a regular state, and that's your every day, that's the thing that you're just normally used to. What happens is you start breathing faster just naturally because you're in that state. When you start breathing faster, you're sending a signal through your, through your to the autonomic nervous system, because of that breathing, it is that bottom up or, or top down in this case mm-hmm. signal, and that signal says, "Hey, I'm in a state of fight or flight," <laughs> and then your autonomic nervous system says, "Oh my god, we must be in more danger than I even thought," mm-hmm. and so it starts to ratchet up things. Uh, it starts to ratchet up this state of fight or flight, and before you know it, you're freaking out, you're having panic attacks, you're you're just in a state of constant anxiety. We see it all too often. And of course, our first thing to do is to do drugs and all these things, um, you know, whether prescription or otherwise. And the, the interesting thing is we actually have it in our capacity to just take that breath and, and, and use it to shift back into the state or at least decelerate that, um, yeah. that fight or flight state. So here's what we're going to do. All right. So, so if, if you're listening to this or if you're watching or whatever, I, what I want you to do is the first step is to observe how you're breathing. Okay. So, so you, you can't switch into, there's no magic spell, right? There's no way to say, okay. um, and, and the thing is, if you go straight into a breathing technique, sometimes it causes you more stress than, than it's worth because it's stressful to go into this augmented state whenever you're naturally in the other state. So we have to ease ourselves in. So naturally just take a, take a minute to, to kind of observe how you're breathing. And what we're going to do is we're going to shoot for inhaling and exhaling. We're going to shoot for a ratio. So for every one second that you inhale, you're going to try to exhale for two seconds. So one to two ratio, inhale to exhale. And we're going to, however it was that you're started, you're going to switch to nasal breathing only. And so, okay, great. We're going to just do the nasal breathing. What this is going to do is going to, it 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 makes your diaphragm more active. So you're going to naturally be breathing into the belly more. And that's the next step. You're going to try to breathe down into the belly and you're going to try to not breathe into the chest. So just the belly. So nasal breathing, breathing into the belly. And we're going to, wherever it is you are, wherever it is you are, try to slowly adjust to a one to two ratio, inhale to exhale. Now, one way to do this and make it a little easier is to exhale through the mouth, because it just so happens that it's it's easier to kind of manage exhales through the mouth because we can we can kind of purse our lips a little bit. But what we're gonna do is slowly but surely, and and it, it depends on where you are, but we're slowly but surely going to work our way to a four second inhale, and an eight second exhale. So four eight breathing, and what this is going to do is is a lot of things. But specifically, you're going to be breathing. You're going to be basically that, that every inhale and exhale. So every breath is taking twelve seconds to occur, and in and so just lengthening if even if it was an even inhale to exhale just lengthening the breath is a signal to the autonomic nervous system but since we're extending that exhale we're sending an extra strong signal to the autonomic nervous system you're safe you can relax it's not as bad as you think it's going to be okay
0: thanks for listening did you think of someone you know while you listened Help me grow the show by sharing this episode with that person. If you liked the mixtape style of episode, you might also like episode 92, which is a mental health mixtape. Stay tuned next week when I talk with the very first guest I ever had on the show for a remake of our episode as we discuss shaming versus inspiring, the real way to get people on board with your cause.